0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we're looking together at chapter 26. You'll find this on page 935 of the Pew Bible. We're looking together at Acts chapter 26. And we're going to read together verses 19 through 25. Hear the word of God. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. We find the Apostle standing before Festus, Agrippa, and the king's sister, Bernice. They are surrounded by important dignitaries, and the audience hall was filled with onlookers. And it was before this auspicious gathering that Paul was summoned to give a defense. He outlined his early training at the feet of Gamaliel, and his former way of life as a Pharisee. He also described the striking manner of his conversion and his commission. On the road to Damascus, the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him in blazing glory. And it was an awesome watershed event that altered the whole course of Paul's life. And as Paul was rehearsing these things, he testified to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it was at that moment that Governor Festus could no longer restrain himself. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And so the Roman governor summed up the situation by saying that Paul was crazy. He didn't consider Paul a criminal to be punished. He didn't think of him as a villain to be restrained. He saw him as a crank, not a felon to be punished, but a lunatic to be pitied. And without even consulting with King Agrippa, this is how he expressed his unbelief. You're crazy. Festus was aware of Paul's intellectual prowess. He respected his great learning. He concluded that this Jew's long hours of study had overheated his brain. The mental stress of his academic rigor had skewed his thinking. Paul, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. These were strange ideas indeed. Everyone knows that the dead don't rise. These doctrines were absurd. Only a fool would embrace such things as this. So, like the rest of the world, Festus viewed these as the ramblings of a maniac. Festus was not only puzzled, but downright stunned, baffled, and confused. And it seemed to him like an absurd riddle, just a preposterous conundrum. What is this about dying for sins and rising from the dead? How absurd. Come on, Paul. You know better than that, let's be reasonable. And so it goes to the unbelieving Gentile mind, all of this is absolute folly. And that's why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You know something? The Greeks were the most refined, cultured and literary people in the ancient world. They appreciated the rewards of diligent study. They delighted in philosophical speculation. They loved to hear and discuss theoretical questions and novel doctrines. And as long as these new concepts could be explained with ingenuity and eloquence, they were welcomed. You remember what Paul said about the Athenians in Acts 17? He said all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Athens was most famous as the center of philosophy and learning in the ancient world. And that cultural mindset had been assimilated into the Roman culture. And you know something? Despite all of their learning and worldly wisdom, Athens and Rome did not know or worship the true God. They could not, and they did not discover the truth regarding spiritual things. Try as they might. They groped for God without success, so they claimed devotion to an unknown God. And thus, we're told they had no hope and were without God in the world. And that's tragic. But, of course, God chose to reveal himself through the gospel preached by Paul, and the Lord was gracious in saving those among the Gentiles who ended up believing in Jesus. But to the proud rationalism of the majority of Greeks and Romans, this gospel was utterly foolish. And for two reasons. First, it's plain, simple, and humbling, to be quite honest. There is nothing philosophically gratifying about the gospel. Repent and believe in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. And Greek rationalism could not and would not bend the knee to this claptrap. Listen to the language. The gospel is addressed even to the lowest and the humblest of people. Children can understand it. It's not published in the enticing words of man's worldly wisdom. It's just so well plain and simple. There's no lofty academic fluency here. It talks about repentance and self-denial and humble obedience. That's the first reason. So the world will say, I cannot and will not stoop to the level of this Jewish carpenter. That's the first reason. But the second reason is that the gospel is supernatural. It's above nature. It's beyond reason. It was accomplished by a God-man, or so they claim. It's applied by supernatural power to your heart and mind Through simple, common, ordinary means, God works supernaturally. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And faith is required to understand and receive and embrace the gospel. So the world says, what is that? Give me reasons. Don't give me absurd doctrines to believe. And hence we have before us the typical Gentile response in, the Governor, in Governor Festus. This Roman official despised both the manner and the message of the gospel. Its simplicity was distasteful. Its cross was abhorrent. Its supernaturalism was offensive. So Festus refused to believe it. He failed to understand it. He would not apply it. And you know what the irony is? He likely participated in the superstitious pagan rituals of Rome. (laughs) Whether he did or not is not mentioned. I'm speculating here. But you know something to advance In the civil sphere, one had to go along with the Roman ceremonies. And I think Festus participated in and advocated the paganism of his day. And they were strange doctrines, let me tell you. Practices that were totally contrary to reason. As a matter of fact, the Christian religion is the most rational worldview of all worldviews. It's the only one that truly makes sense of this fallen world, right? I mean, what else makes sense of this? Apart from Christianity, suffering is pointless. Death ends it all. And therefore, the preacher is right vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Generation goes, generation comes. The sun rises, the sun goes down, all things are full of weariness. What has been will be. It's just one big cycle. No point. No other religion, no other philosophy can make sense of this fallen world. And yet Festus is calling Paul crazy. I think he lacks self-awareness. And of course, I think we can perhaps understand the basic rationale for Festus's unbelief, because if Paul spoke the truth, then the ethical and the spiritual demands are mind blowing. They're unlike any other worldview the governor had ever encountered. And it was a very uncomfortable feeling for Festus. He felt inadequate, he felt self conscious, he felt convicted. The God of whom Paul was speaking was nothing like the pagan idols. And this teaching implied nothing less than the absolute lordship of the crucified Christ. And it would bind Festus to live a life of consistent holiness and self-denial, something he was unwilling to do. (laughs) The true and living God is not like pagan idols. He cannot be manipulated. He does not cater to man's wishes. He is not a safe deity by any means. He is sovereign over your life and over mine. The pagan idols have mouths, they can't speak, they have eyes, they can't even see, they have ears, they can't hear, they have no power, no truth, no life. They are utterly worthless. By contrast, the apostle declares in Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. That's why it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know something, this modern generation I don't think grasps the truth of God's severity. Not something we talk about too often, God's severity. He is full of grace, He's rich in mercy, He's abundantly good and compassionate, but He does not and He will not tolerate sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34. I think verse 7. And the supreme demonstration of that truth was vividly displayed at the cross. If you want to see the extent to which sin is punished, all you have to do is consider the crucifixion of Christ Jesus. How terrible must it be to suffer under the weight of God's wrath? The agony and the death of Jesus is the most vivid exhibition of divine severity you'll ever see. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the worst mistake that we can make is to underestimate the gravity of sin and the severity of judgment. The apostle says that those in the Old Testament who sinned with a high hand were sentenced to death. Okay? You sin with a high hand, you're executed. Now listen to what he says following that. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The human conscience tells every sinner that the wrath of God is coming. And it's true, you can ask hospice workers, that unbelievers unprepared for eternity lose their braggadocio before the jaws of death. They die even as they lived, without God and thus without hope. Perhaps you've heard of a man called Thomas Paine. He was an American author and skeptic who railed against God, and he died in 1809. Thomas Paine. He wrote a book called The Age of Reason, in which he challenged Christianity and the legitimacy of the Bible. Not true. Myths. You know what his dying words were? Listen to this. I would give worlds if I had them that age of reason had not been published. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. Yet, if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that agent. We can only imagine how Festus met death only two years after this scene. I think, like Thomas Paine, he was filled with a fearful expectation of judgment. And as Paul preached, Festus realized the awful reality of his accountability to God. Conscience terrified him with thoughts of the dark unknown beyond the grave. Dark unknown. And he was perceptive enough, apparently, to realize the implications of Paul's sermon. In fact, the Spirit was convicting him at that moment of righteousness, sin, and judgment, and he illustrates the natural blindness and corruption of the fallen human heart, Festus. As Agrippa will exemplify the pride and unbelief of the sin-plagued human mind, Festus, as the typical Gentile, shows how man is spiritually blind. He considered the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, as absolute folly. Foolishness, its simplicity and its humility and its call for self-denial offended his Gentile pride. And its supernaturalism made no sense. What what is this foolish religion? And sadly, as you and I both know, today there are multitudes of people who are just as spiritually blind. Doesn't this imply the tremendous blessing of spiritual illumination? Apart from the work of God's Spirit, you and I are as spiritually blind and insensitive as Festus. We who've been brought to understand and appreciate the truth, we're blessed. Jesus says as much. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And therefore, you and I should never boast as if we've done something special. For reasons known only to God. He has enlightened our minds. He's renewed our hearts. There's nothing we've done to earn or deserve this amazing benefit. But it's a matter of great joy. Who knows why God chose to open our hearts? But we rejoice that he did. And therefore we sing, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, t'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. We're going to sing that. He enlightened our minds. He filled our experience with the light of Christ. And what a blessing that is. There are many more people far more noble than us who've been left in darkness. That ought to humble us. God enlightened you and I for no other reason than that it pleased him to do so. He singled us out. He put his love upon us. He called us at the appropriate time and we are the objects of his eternal, distinguishing, covenant love. And I don't know how else to explain it. He set his unwavering love upon us before the foundation of the world. That's what foreknow means. He foreknew you. He foreloved you. And as a result, he's seen fit to reveal himself to us and not to others. And he's the only one who can do it. When it comes to the truth of Christ and the spiritual things, only God can reveal them. He has to enlighten the mind if we're going to understand these things of Christ. He must renew the will if we're going to accept the things of Christ. There's a difference, you see, between simply affirming the atonement and truly understanding and believing in it. Festus understood Paul's statements He even perceived the implications. It wasn't Paul's vocabulary or his syntax that was the cause of his consternation. He could hear the sentences. It was the truth he was preaching. It was the light of the gospel that troubled Festus. The governor would not grasp and truly understand or make sense of any of it. Paul was clear, thorough, orthodox. The truth was presented. Festus heard the words, but he was utterly blind. And it shows that his mind had not been enlightened and his heart had not been renewed. This knowledge cannot be acquired by means of worldly methods or earthly techniques. Again, it's supernatural. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see? God has to shine in the heart with divine light for us to recognize Christ. These young people that were training to be worshipers, we pray that God would open up the eyes of their hearts and that they would stand up here and profess their faith to a watching world so that Jesus will confess you before his Father in heaven. I think this explains how ignorant, uneducated fishermen can become so perceptive. You know, the scribes and Pharisees, we give them a bad rap. These were men of superior training. They were the religious elite of their day. They were the great preachers and teachers of Israel. And they were blinded by their ignorance. How ironic. The disciples were able to discern the deep and spiritual truths by the Spirit. And the question I ask is, why the disciples and not the Pharisees? Why them? Why humble tradesmen and not the religious elite? Because for reasons known only to him, God chose them before the foundation of the world. Do you find that difficult to embrace? Do you find that hard to understand? A little scary? I do. He's sovereign. I don't understand how this harmonizes with our free will. We have been endowed with natural liberty to make free choices. And yet through sin, we've lost all ability to choose anything spiritually good. By nature, we're averse to good. We are dead in sin. We cannot believe because dead men don't believe. You can poke them, prick them, stab them. Nothing happens. It's a corpse. So, out of sovereign love and grace, God enlightens the mind and renews the heart, and we're converted. He elects, we choose. It's a mystery. God imparted to the disciples spiritual knowledge that he withheld from others. And Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. We're not talking about revealing new truths. That's inspiration. We're talking about the ability to believe and understand the truths that have been revealed. That's illumination. The Holy Spirit enlightens the mind. He renews the heart to grasp these things. There are no new doctrines, no new truths, no new teachings about Christ, heaven, or hell. All of these things have been revealed already in the Bible. But as converts, we receive this new, more vivid apprehension of truth. This is not in my notes. I'm ad-libbing, and it's always dangerous. But you've heard the story of the guy who was going to church for years. And he sat in the pew week after week and nothing seemed to happen until one day he comes before the elders wanting to become a member. And they interview him and say, what happened to you? And he said, well, I don't know what you guys are doing, but all of a sudden the sermon is gripping and the hymns are full of life and there's joy in the worship. What did you guys do that's different? And all the elders looked at each other and smiled. Nothing. (laughs) Something's happened to you. That's the Holy Spirit. We see the glory of the gospel. We're thankful for the death of Christ and therefore we sing, Alas, and did my savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown and love beyond degree. The distinct privilege of the Christian is that he or she alone is able to see clearly. Blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear, said the Lord Jesus. Some people are very familiar with the Bible stories, all kinds of verses, they can rattle them off. And while they may know about them, They have no appreciation for them. Sincere Christians are not only conversant about them, but engaged with them, because the eyes of our hearts have been opened. Jonathan Edwards liked to illustrate this truth by referring to the sweetness of honey. A man can affirm honey is sweet. He can read all about it. He can write papers on it. He can spend a lot of time pondering and speculating about the sweetness of honey. But until he actually tastes it, he experiences it, his understanding is deficient. You don't know about honey until you taste honey. In the same way, people may have opinions about the holiness and the grace of God. But they don't have any personal sense of the loveliness and the beauty and the glory of Christ. They can talk all about it in a cold, intellectual, academic manner. Boy, their intellectual prowess is amazing. All kinds of degrees. But it's only those who've been enlightened that have experiential proof. So, in closing, four observations that are very brief. First, this has direct bearing upon our belief in the truth of the gospel. There is no faith apart from spiritual enlightenment and experiential renewal. If the Spirit of God doesn't give you new life in Christ, you will not believe. That's it. He's sovereign. It doesn't mean we neglect our study. It doesn't mean that we just gaze at the navel. No, we work to grow in our knowledge and pray to know them experientially. And we ask God for his blessing, enabling us to sense the truth and the beauty of spiritual things. No one forgoes worldly pleasures for a crucified Savior unless they sense the glory of Christ. Right? You're not going to give up the things that your flesh loves unless you see the beauty of Christ. Open my eyes, said the psalmist, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Second, This has implications for the way that we practice Christianity. This spiritual enlightenment produces joy in the heart. It changes the soul. It produces holiness in the life. That's why Paul says we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. The practical outworking of all this is a sincerely obedient life. Are you obeying or at least trying to obey for the glory of Christ? I know that even our best efforts are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God, but you know something? In the Christian life, there's going to be progress. You should be able to compare yourself with your previous self and see some change. Third, This has bearing upon our spiritual comfort. You have reason to rejoice if you believe. If you believe. If God has favored you with the greatest of all blessings, life in Christ, you have reason to rejoice and sing praise. The fact that you not only understand the Bible, but that you actually believe it. That this is the very word of God. That's an amazing thing. As we said in this Sunday school, there's so much opposition that conspired against you believing that. It's amazing. It's a miracle of grace. Anybody can enjoy the good gifts of creation food, drink, grain, wine but it's only those enlightened by the Spirit who can even now begin to enjoy the things of heaven. You know something? When death knocks at your door, you're going to be so thankful that you have spiritual enlightenment and that you don't know salvation in Christ. Finally, very quickly, this has relevance for our gratitude. Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've revealed them to little children. He gives this to every believer, learned and unlearned, young and old alike, and it's a blessing for which we give thanks. As the psalmist said, give thanks to the Lord, sing to him, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let's do that now after we pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. It is a great blessing to have the eyes of the heart open, the ears unstopped, the affections drawn, and to be able to see the things of Christ, the beauty, truth, and goodness of spiritual things. We thank you for it and ask that you'll receive our praise, for we offer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.